So this morning we're going to continue in our series on Matthew. So turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. You know, it's interesting, I just had that conversation with Kevin and have been having all these meetings uh, about setting up a plan. Because last week, we talked about the fact that, uh, you know, Jesus healed this lame guy at the beginning of Matthew 9. But Jesus made it clear that the physical healing, the physical restoration was not the most important thing. It was his spiritual healing and the spiritual forgiveness that Jesus was really concerned about. And that's what we saw last week. So this week, uh, we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And the title of this sermon is, Jesus is Calling. Jesus is Calling. How many of you have had that devotional, that book? I think there's a devotional called Jesus is Calling. How many of you have read that? Anybody out there? A few of you? So the premise of that devotional is that uh, Jesus wants to say something specific to you every single day. Jesus wants to say something to you each and every day. And so... Um, I love that premise. In fact, I would say this morning as we're here, uh, that's exactly what Jesus wants to do. He wants to give you a message. And how interesting would it be if every day you knew at 8 a.m. Jesus was going to call you on the phone and you'd say, oh, Jesus is calling. So you'd answer that phone and, and he'd give you your instructions for the day. How amazing would that be? Well, guess what? He does do that. Uh, in fact, this morning, I would say this, he wants to give us a text message uh, from his word. And so we're going to be looking at his text and let's listen to what he has to say to us this morning as we look at his word. So Matthew chapter nine, verses nine through 13 says this, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. So like I said this morning, Jesus is calling out to you. He's calling out to me. He has a message for you to hear, and we see it in his words. In fact, he literally calls someone in these verses. So as we as we read those verses, I don't know if you caught it, there's really two scenes, two locations where Jesus is talking. Uh, and really, he gives two different calls in each of those. Uh, in, in each one, we get a different call. And so the first scene is this. He meets this guy named Matthew at the tax booth. And in this scene, in verse 9, we see Jesus give the call to follow. Okay, this is what Jesus does. He says, Matthew, I want you to follow me. Look at this. It says, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. So what we have here is a call to follow. And so what I want us to look at just this morning for a few minutes is why. A couple of questions. Why? Why Matthew? Why does, does Matthew get focused on in this little text? Here's a, a picture of classic art. And I don't know how well you can see that, uh, but you'll notice down at the end of the table with his head down is this guy named Matthew. He's counting his money, all right? His face is kind of shaded. I love looking at these classic art pictures. And uh, right in the middle of the table, there's a dude standing there saying, 
that guy? Like, what, you mean Matthew? Are you talking about him? Uh, you can just see the surprise on his face. And you see Jesus reaching out and calling this man named Matthew. But when you look at this picture, I think whoever the artist was, they were trying to capture that idea. Why Matthew? Of all the people Jesus could have walked up to and said, follow me, why would he choose Matthew? We know a few things about this guy. And um, uh, one thing is it says he was in a tax booth. That means he was a tax collector. Uh, tax collectors in, uh, in biblical times were the lowest of the low. Okay, In, in the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, we see the, the writers of the Gospels pairing them up with the worst of the known sinners. Okay, Tax collectors and sinners. We see that twice in the passage today. Tax collectors and prostitutes. We see them uh, labeled, lumped in all together. These people who are clearly breaking God's law and being terrible people. Okay, so tax collectors fit into that category. Well, what makes them so terrible? What makes Matthew the least likely of all people? So Jesus comes at a very specific moment in human history. And during this time, the Romans are the dominant force in the world. Okay, so the Roman government has come into a place like Palestine, the land of Israel. And one of the things they did was to set up a taxation system. So they would actually recruit tax collectors and would say, hey, we want you to go around and collect the taxes from your own people. In fact, they would actually take bids from tax collectors and say, hey, how much will you give the government? How much will you keep for yourselves? And they would interview them and then give them the job. It was almost like an official job interview. And then it was crucial to the Roman Empire. They said, we've got to have money to keep our empire going. So we're going to need you tax collectors to go out and get as much money from your people as you possibly can. So here's the problem. Number one, all the local people looked at those tax collectors as the worst kind of traitor. Like they're helping the invaders. They're helping the occupiers. You're doing whatever they tell you to do. And not only that, you're taking my money. I don't have money to give you. Which, by the way, some things haven't changed, right? Uh, we still kind of feel the same way about taxes, right? There's two things that are certain, death and taxes. And neither one of those are really positive in our minds, are they? Uh, and so tax collectors were really, really looked down upon. They were traitors. The other thing is the whole system was set up to make these guys into cheaters. They were greedy, cheating type of people because they could go out and say, I'm going to collect a hundred bucks from you, Chad, and I'm going to give 20 bucks to the Romans, but I get to keep 80 for myself. They could kind of make their own rules and the, and the people had to obey them. And so they were not only traitors, they were also greedy, sneaky, and really underhanded types of people. And they got rich. They got really rich. But as we see uh, in other places, like the story of Zacchaeus, they didn't have a lot of friends. It's hard to be friends with somebody like that. So these were the lowest of the low. Traitors, cheaters, greedy people. So why Matthew? Why would Jesus call Matthew? There's one simple word for this. This is something we see throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, throughout all the teaching about Jesus. And it's the word grace. Okay, Grace means you don't deserve this gift, but God's going to give it to you anyways. Grace says you don't deserve to be loved, but God loves you anyways. And Matthew is a powerful picture of that. He is the least likely person for Jesus to walk up to and say, hey, Come follow me. 
And yet, because of God's grace, Jesus says, it's not because you deserve it, but I'm going to call you to follow me. So why, Matthew? It's because of grace. But here's another question. Why would Matthew put this right here in the book of Matthew? At the, in, right here in the middle of chapter 9, now they didn't have chapter numbers uh, when Matthew wrote this, but why, as he's telling the whole story of the gospel of Jesus, why would he put it right here? Well, let's look at what came right before. If we go back to Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, it's this story about Jesus proving that he has the power to forgive sins. Remember, he gets into that whole dispute with the religious leaders, and they say, why are you forgiving sins? And how can you say you can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, you're right. It's easy for me to say that, but to prove it, I'm going to heal the guy. And so he heals him, and he proves that he has power over physical sickness and spiritual sickness. And then the very next thing Matthew talks about is, here's exhibit A. If God has the power to forgive sins, look at what he did for me. He called me to follow him. You know, it's really interesting in all the Gospels, and definitely in Matthew, uh, but I think it's in all the Gospels, Matthew never actually speaks. He never says anything. We don't have any story where it says, Matthew said this. But he wrote this Gospel. So remember, Jesus chose this unlikely person, gave him undeserved grace, And I think when Matthew records it right here, he says, I'm exhibit A. Jesus has the power to forgive sins. If he can call me, he can call anyone and forgive their sins. One more thing. If you look back at, uh, let's flip all the way back to Genesis, okay? Genesis chapter 5. I love what Matthew does in his book, in his gospel. And this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what God wanted him to write. Uh, if you look back at the very first book in the Bible, Genesis 5, we get to this place where a lot of times you probably skip over. It's the genealogy, okay? Uh, and so uh, let's look at this. In Matthew cha- or Genesis chapter 5, it says this, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. Verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and then he died. And if you keep reading down the story, that's how they all end. It says, and then he died, and then he died, verse 14, and then he died, verse 17, verse 20, and then he died. Flip over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. So that chapter in Genesis began by saying, these are the generations of Adam, the first man that God created. Look at Matthew chapter 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes through, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and it goes on and on. It says this, and and you notice it doesn't say anything about death. And there's a reason for that, because I believe Matthew, even from the very first verses of his book, is trying to say Jesus came to bring new life and to restore that thing where everyone has to die. And so when he starts going through this, uh, it's amazing to me when we think about why Matthew was chosen and why Matthew wrote this book, 
Matthew's exhibit A of the new life that God can give to somebody who's flawed and broken because of Adam and Eve and the original sin. And God says, I can give new life even to Adam's offspring. And one of them is named Matthew. This is a very personal account. Matthew's telling us, Jesus called me. Jesus said, follow me. Not because I deserved it, but because he loved me. Life and forgiveness were offered to Matthew. Life and forgiveness are offered to you and to me. All you have to do is follow Jesus. Look at what Luke says about this account. This is in Luke chapter 5. It says this, After this, Jesus went out. He saw a tax collector named Levi. So Levi was Matthew's other name. uh, Sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. That's really interesting that Luke says he left everything. In other words, he just got up and left. Uh, one author I read said, well, he left everything except his pen, right? Figuratively. He actually took his pen because God used him in a powerful way to record, record the first gospel. But he left everything so he could follow Jesus. He left everything so he could follow Jesus and proclaim this good news uh, to everyone around him. So that brings us to this question again. Why? Why would Matthew say yes to Jesus? When Jesus says, follow me, why did Matthew just get up and follow him? I suppose we can't really know that answer entirely. But if you read the whole gospel of Matthew, I think you get some hints. You see, Matthew describes Jesus as the great king, the great savior. And when the king says something to you, you listen and you obey. And I think that's exactly what Matthew did. He heard the words of the king. And when Jesus said, follow me, he stood up and said, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Why would Matthew say yes? When the king calls your name, you answer. So this morning, when you hear those words, follow me, it's not Marcus who's asking you to follow Jesus. This is the king. This is his word. And he's saying, follow me. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? You know, it's interesting, a little earlier in the chapter, uh, back in chapter 8, remember Jesus actually called some of these people to follow him. Verse 18, a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Talked about that a few weeks ago. But here we are, we come to the most unlikely of people, Matthew. And when Jesus says, follow me, he stands up and follows Jesus. What does that mean to follow Jesus? I think first of all, it's this. It means to trust him. Okay, Whatever Matthew was trusting in before, whether it was his ability to make money or the Romans to keep him safe, whatever he was trusting in to keep his life going, he turned away from all that and turned to Jesus. What an expression of trust. The greatest thing we can trust Jesus for is what he talked about last week in the previous passage, and that is the forgiveness of your sins. Only God can forgive sins. And he does that through Jesus Christ, through this person who came, walked the earth, gave us teaching, healed the sick, and then died on the cross 
so that you didn't have to, so I didn't have to. He paid for our sins. He paid the price we deserve to pay. And then he was raised again on the third day, guaranteeing the eternal life that he's promised us as a result of this forgiveness. It means to follow Jesus means to trust him, to trust that he alone can forgive your sins. You can't be good enough. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't know the right people, depend on your parents to have your sins forgiven. There's only one person who can forgive your sins, and that's Jesus Christ. And to follow him means to trust him alone. Turn to him and trust. But then once you've done that, that begins your walk with Christ. And what I would tell you is this, to follow Jesus means that you turn to him and trust, which means you're turning away from whatever else it was that you were pursuing before you knew him. And so you've begun your walk by trust, by faith. You read the New Testament, we are called to walk by faith. Continue walking by faith each day of your life. Walk with him. So what does it mean to trust and follow him? What does it mean to follow him? It means to trust him, to walk with him. And then as we see in this passage, it means to share him with others. To follow Jesus means it's not enough just to know about him and to try to follow his teaching and walk with him, but you have to share this with the people around you. See, Jesus this morning gives us a call to follow him. So my question to you is, will you follow him? Like Matthew, when he says, follow me, will you follow him? If you've never begun that journey, if you've never trusted him, if you're still holding on and trying to earn your way into a relationship with God, earn your way into heaven, stop trying. Trust him. And then once you've trusted him, walk with him and share this good news with others. The king is calling you this morning. Follow him. And if you've already begun that walk, keep on following him. It's a wonderful relationship. That brings us to the second call that Jesus gives us in verses 9 through 13. And that is a call to love sinners. A call to love sinners. Look at verses 10 and 11. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? You know, it's mentioned two times. Just to be clear, Jesus is hanging out with the bad people, okay? Uh, in fact, if you read, I think it's over in Luke again, it says, Matthew threw a great feast for Jesus and for all his friends. So Jesus is hanging out with the really unclean people, according to how they were viewed during those days. And it really bothers those religious leaders. In fact, it was scandalous. Why would somebody who's supposedly so good hang out with people that are so bad? Look at what Jesus says. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desired mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus really kind of gives us three little phrases in there. And I want us to look at each of those. And I think the first one does this. It explains his work. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. So Jesus is explaining that he has come to heal the sick. In fact, that's exactly what he did in the previous passage. He heals a man who's physically sick. But remember the whole point of those first eight verses? 
is Jesus is saying, sure, I can heal his sickness, but that's not his most important problem. His most important problem is that he's a sinner, separated from God, infected with a disease that will kill him. And Jesus says, I've come to heal people like that. So that brings up this question then, who are the sick people? Who are the sick people? It's interesting uh, that the religious leaders get really upset that Jesus is hanging around with those who are obviously sick. In fact, I think Jesus focuses in intentionally on the people who know they are sick. And he offers this message to them first because they are ready and willing to be healed. You would expect Jesus to be around those people who need help, who know that they need help. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And that's how he explains his work. He says, I've come here to reach out to these people who are lost. I can't do anything different. That's why God sent me, is to reach the people who are broken. Now, what's interesting is we're going to see here in the middle of these verses is that I think he implies that these religious people are actually broken themselves. They just don't realize it. So he's explaining his work as he says, I'm called, we are called to love sinners. And then the second part of that is he says, I want you to understand my love. What does he say? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, this actually goes back to the book of Hosea. He's quoting Hosea. Flip in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Hosea is one of those prophets in the middle of the Old Testament that we call the minor prophets. And we don't call them the minor prophets because they're less important, okay? They are just as important. In fact, Jesus quotes this guy twice in a couple of chapters here in Matthew. He quotes this exact same phrase again a little bit later. Uh, but Hosea chapter 6, um, here's Hosea's situation. He's a prophet of God. God's people have turned away from God. At the end of the Old Testament, God's people were doing unspeakable things, uh, basically worshiping idols, doing everything that the sinful people around them were doing. And God says, it's like you're cheating on me. It's like you're committing spiritual adultery. And he says, I'm going to give you this powerful picture. He says to Hosea, I want you to go out and I want you to take a wife who's a prostitute. And Hosea says, what? And, and God says, yeah, her name's Gomer. Okay, and so Hosea goes out and marries a, a woman named Gomer who's a prostitute. And God says, this is a picture of my love for my people. That it doesn't matter that she doesn't deserve your love. It doesn't matter that she's defiled and polluted. I want you to love her anyways. I don't know about you. I'm glad I'm not Hosea. But God says, I want you to do that. Well, the story gets even crazier. They have a kid and then Gomer runs away and goes back to her prostitution. And guess what Hosea has to do? God says, I want you to go, and I actually want you to pay for her. You're going to have to buy her from her master and bring her back home. Because that's a picture of the love that God has for his people. So when Jesus quotes Hosea, all that's in his mind. And he's saying, this has always been a part of God's plan, is to pursue sinners. And offer them healing and forgiveness and rescue. Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 says this. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What God's telling his people in the Old Testament is. Every time you get in trouble, you run to the temple and you make a sacrifice. And you say, God, are you good now? Um, in other words, they're just going through the motions. 
They're practicing religion. And what God says is, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to trust me. I want you to worship me with your whole heart. Have a heart like mine, a merciful heart. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And so God says, you guys have missed the point. You might be religious. You might be doing all the right things, checking all the right boxes, going to church, worshiping, giving your offerings. But you're not showing mercy. Your heart hasn't been changed. And it's clear, by the way, you're looking at these tax collectors and sinners. You're not loving them. You see them as a problem. Jesus says, I see them as souls who need a shepherd. Grace. God says, I'm going to give these people what they don't deserve. And that's love and forgiveness. They can have it if they'll only trust me. That's all they have to do is trust me. And I think then he also kind of gives this challenge to the religious people and says, maybe you're sick. If you're not even, if all you're doing is going through the motions and you come to church regularly and you uh, sing the songs, raise your hands at just the right time, that's no guarantee that you know me. You have to trust me and have a relationship with me. And so he says to some of these people, you've missed the point. All you're trying to do is check the box. You don't even have a relationship. You don't trust me. God says, I want you to understand my love. Understand the love he has for you. And then understand the love he has for those around you who are broken and in need of a savior. God loves the most unlikely people. Matthew says, I'm exhibit A. The apostle Paul says the same thing. I'm the chief among sinners. When you look at yourself, would you call yourself exhibit A? Rescued by Jesus? That's the only accurate way to look at yourself. But then I think what we see in these verses is that Jesus is calling us, his followers, to join him in his work. Join him in his work. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, he came not to call those who are right with him, but he came to call those who need to be made right with him, which is every human being who's ever lived. And so I would just encourage you this, as we look at the example of Jesus, look how the religious people were kind of pushing back on him. I think Jesus says you need to love sinners. And here's the other thing. You can't love people that you don't know, or at least you're very limited in how you can love them. And if we want to show them the kind of love that Jesus shows them, then we need to love them and know them the way he did. I want to read a, a quote that, that I found this week, and here's what it says. When it comes to sinners and outcasts, it says this, we must get to know them as intimately as Jesus did. Only close and trusted friends share table fellowship over meals. We dare not join with sinners in their sinning, but we may well have to go places with them and encounter the world's wickedness in the ways that the contemporary Pharisees in our churches will likely decry. So here's something you got to realize. You can't very well love sinners if you don't know any. And so I would encourage you to make it a part of your rhythm of life, to make sure you're around people who don't know Jesus so that you can love them, befriend them, and lead them to Jesus. Lead them to the healing that he can provide. Lead them to the healing that he can provide. I think Jesus is calling us this morning. And he's saying, I'm calling you to love sinners. You're one of them. You were one of them. 
Such were some of you, but now you've been washed, you've been sanctified, and you've been set free from those sins. Now go out and share that love with those who need it most. Don't be afraid of what they say or what they look like or what they smell like. Jesus says, I want to rescue all of them. Will you join him in his work? Will you seek out those who need him? Introduce them to the healer, the king, the one who offers grace. You know, there's a story uh, from the 1700s of a guy named John Newton. Many of you have probably heard of him. What a powerful picture of this kind of transformation. It kind of reminds me of Matthew's story. John Newton was a sailor in the British Navy, okay? Uh, and then he went out of that and got involved in the slave trade. And so he was going back and forth on slave tr- ships, hauling slaves to the New World and to England. Uh, what a terrible industry to be involved in, right? The lowest of the low, abusing human beings, selling them like livestock. In fact, at one point, his ship got wrecked or something, and he ended up becoming a slave. And so you would say, oh, that must have cured him. Once he saw how slaves were treated, he probably gave it all up. But no, he actually escaped, and he actually got his own slave ship and redoubled his efforts. He was getting really rich by trading in people. And then he met Jesus, and he trusted Jesus, and Jesus transformed him. And what John Newton did, uh, most of you know this, was to write the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see. You know, that's the truth of what Jesus has done for each one of us. It's what he did for Matthew. It's what he did for John Newton. It's what he's done for you if you've trusted him. And he wants you to follow him and join him in his work. Jesus is calling this morning. How will you answer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great task that you've given us to share this good news with people around us. God, I pray that we would have your heart, that we would share your love with those who deserve it the least, God. Walk with us in the days ahead. Help us to walk with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Now go and make disciples.